0: Welcome to another Principal of Hospitality podcast. I'm your host as always, Sean DeVries. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Now, food brings people together and promotes community. And here at Principal of Hospitality, we're here to disrupt the current perceptions of what the hospitality industry can achieve in today's ever-evolving and challenging environment. So that's why we're so proud to partner with Chefs Hat, the largest family-owned and operated hospitality supplier in Australia on this season of POE. Now Signature Hospitality Group is home to some of the fastest growing brands in Australian uh, sporting and hospitality landscape, including the Sporting Globe Bar & Grill and TGI Fridays in Asia Pacific. Welcoming over three million guests annually, Signature Hospitality Group is a fast growing enterprise and employs over 1,250 staff, over 34 locations in five different states in Australia, serving high quality modern food and beverages. Now as a keen entrepreneur, James Sinclair seized the opportunity to bring the beloved sports bar and grill to Australia with both a company-owned and franchise business model. So it's great to talk with the CEO and principal Signature Hospitality Group today, James Sinclair. Hey, James, how are you?
1: Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me and hello to your listeners.
0: Um, thanks so much. It's uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, I've been definitely watching what Signature has been doing from afar for, for a long time, uh, especially with... Uh, TGIs and, and now with Sporting Globe it's really exciting especially in a space which needed you know some energy um, around around sporting events and that kind of stuff and bringing people together over great beer and um, great beverages and great food so I'm really excited for this chat today mate when let's let's start out with how you started out in the hospitality industry and then how it came to be that Signature got started as well.
1: Well, I was, um, I was living abroad in the US and uh, was not working in hospitality at all, but uh, had found a love for buffalo wings, beers and American sport, um, as is pretty easy to do when you're in your early 20s living over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd come home uh, visiting. Uh, I'm a Tragic Demons fan. My brother was a Hawks man. And we were actually trawling around um, Chapel Street trying to find a pub to watch the footy. And he'd previously watched a game the week before with the commentary on and um, fantastic atmosphere in a particular venue this week. Um, I said, no, we're not turning the commentary on because we've got a muse on. And it was a really challenging experience to try and find somewhere to watch the game. Uh, and, you know, I, I, it sort of really uh, resonated with me that, hey, there's an opportunity here. Uh, and I think the way that the US had, had was going and, and continues to perform strongly with with sports bars and sporting content growing, um, I just thought there was a real opportunity to to do something unique there, and um, it wasn't wasn't easy um, getting started. And I partnered with uh, my best mate at the time. We 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 set up down in Geelong, um, and we uh, I guess put. 20 20 to 30 screens into a pub that had failed. It was an Irish pub that had, had um, gone belly up, um, spent a lot of money on the fit out and only lasted about six months. So we we're pretty lucky to get a fit out on the cheap um, and then, you know, really do a, a refurb on a shoestring budget. But we did get the 20 to 30 screens in there. Uh, we definitely put buffalo wings in there. And I remember I went to CUB and said I wanted to put eight beers on tap. And um, I think I was told, that no pub needs more than three beers on tap in Geelong, but um, uh, we went ahead regardless. And, and that was sort of the, the start of it. And as you'd know, in the US, you know, some of the bars over there now, I mean, you can get up to 160 beers on tap in, in some of the biggest sports bars in the US now. So um, we're continuing to see that growth in craft beer in, in our venues and um, uh, in King Street Wharf, that's one of the latest sporting globes in Sydney that we've opened, and we've got 20 different beers on tap over about 85 taps there.
0: Was it was it hard when you guys started out in that in that first venue in Geelong to you know as you as you as you're in it to think that sports was a was a smart sort of concept to play with because not a lot of brands obviously are doing that in Australia, and I understand what you mean because when I was in living and working in Canada, like. You know Monday Monday nights, um, and we it was Wings night, right? Like and watching and watching, um, NHL and that kind of stuff. But in Australia, we don't, we haven't sort of seen that as a as a pure focus like you guys are doing so so well. Like most people move to a you know a pub venue and and sort of sports are part of it, but not really part of it. So was it when you guys first started with that first venue in Geelong and you're in it? Like, did you think it was a really good idea? Like, what made you? continue to move the brand forward
1: i think having having had that experience and and that vision of of knowing um you know what i'd seen abroad and um what i believed it really could be Mm. you know you just got to really stay true to that and it wasn't easy because i think some of the things and buffalo wings is something we talk about a bit which are really popular now and you see them in in so many pubs but I can tell you it was a 50-50 when I used to bring up buffalo wings over a decade ago as whether I'd be told they were fantastic or what is that sauce, that is the worst thing I've ever tasted and, um, uh, you know, send it back. So that was challenging. I think American sport was nowhere near where it is now. I mean, now Super Bowl is just a, a huge event in pubs around Australia. Mm. Uh, I remember the first Super Bowl, I had to pay the local rugby team, bribe them to come down with discounted drinks and even you know free finger food all that sort of jazz to try and get get them excited but um it was growing and i think um you know the the growth of american sport content in australia has really helped has been a great thematic behind um the business Sport is still you know our, our number one pastime and it's the most consumed form of entertainment Um, that we have so again I think uh, leveraging off that and then trying to do good quality food um, it's not one thing that makes a business work there's there's a hundred little things you've got to get right and you know things like the chicken parmigiana that we knew was so important making sure that we used a fresh chicken breast um, hand crumb panko crumb um, parmesan mix doing all that from day one um, at a time where probably you know many pubs that was broadly accepted that there was a a frozen palmer that was brought in and deep fried. <laughs> and we didn't ever fry fried a We grilled them and mm-hmm. finished them in the oven. So, um, you know, it wasn't just sport. It was a, an array of things from cuisine to to atmosphere, ambience, customer service model um, that that all came together um, and the marketing and the marketing strategy around it that all came together to try and create something that was, uh, I guess, uh, unique and, and different to what we had.
0: How, how have you been able to grow it to sort of, Thirty four. Like I talked in, I talked at the start uh, in the intro about the fact that you know you're all around Australia. You're in five different uh, states around Australia at the moment, and the and the fact you do have a balance of company owned and, and, and franchised. So how did how did you get to the point you where know, you had thirty four? That's just a, a fantastic growth strategy over the last decade.
1: Yeah. So I think the it started by doing a couple of years with the first one, and then um, once felt confident that we had that model robust enough. Um, opened a second so it was pretty gradual um, and it doesn't happen overnight so got the second one up and thankfully that went well it really helps if your first couple um, are, are a success because that can you see with people that are growing if you do manage to to get one that doesn't go well early on that can really slow you down so I think it was very fortunate that that the first two were great and then by the time uh, we did a third and then a fourth and the fourth was the first one that we decided to franchise, and and that really helped. And I really believed in the franchise model for a couple of reasons. Uh, and and it's never been about um, about uh, the capital per mm. se of getting a franchisee's capital from from a growth strategy. Um, it was actually always about um, creating right and the best product we possibly could. And we look for partners um, in our in our franchisees that are um, are people people, people persons. Um, And they've got really two core things that we believe will make them more successful than those around them. And that is, number one, look after your staff and your people. And, you know, anybody who's been in a hospital knows the culture and environment you can create, um, especially when you've got a tight team. And I think back to the first venue in Geelong, and we were thick as thieves together. Um, you know, our crew would, you know, Sunday night, we'd be out um, after we closed up the pub, we'd go out to the nightclubs on a Sunday, we would, you know, do you know, everything together. We were, you know, um, as I said, in the thick of it. And that culture, um, I think, guests can, can smell it. They can tell when you're coming to work and you're having fun um, with people that you really care about and engage with. So I think when I thought about it, and as we were scaling, that's really hard to maintain that type of environment and culture in a corporate environment, you've got to work really hard on that. And I think franchisees and franchise partners, you know, being owners in their own venue, that's number one, you know, job that they can they can build a really strong family vibe and culture within their team. Brilliant. And number two is, is of course, the guest and the customer. And customers love coming in and knowing, um, you know, an owner and a, a local face that um, that remembers them and looks after them. And even from, go back to that first venue in Geelong, I still have, um, you know, reggers and people from that market that will text me and um, want a booking on a Friday night. And, you know, I get on and help them and, and do it because um, that's how you built it. And, and you get into local sporting communities, you know. You, you, you've, so having that local element, that's why I believe there can be some really good competitive advantage by having a, a local owner or operator in a franchise partner boots on the ground. So that's how that was the fourth and that's sort of how we got growing there. And then um, you know, it just sort of continued, and every year committed to reinvest and and, and open another and open another and. And then eventually, um, the TJ Fridays business came on the market, um, mm. and we were quite a way in at that point, and had I think about eight sporting globes at the time. And Fridays was was bigger than us. Um, Fridays had ten locations, albeit um, not dissimilar, you know, size of staff and whatnot. But when that business first came on the market, to be honest, I wasn't I wasn't sure about purchasing the entire chain. Um, I think I may have even inquired and thought about purchasing, you know two or three of the assets to do conversions. Mm -hmm. And it was funny, they were offended. They said, you can't by a couple of us. We're TGI Fridays. We're the biggest American restaurant chain in the world. 61 countries, 75,000 people, um, you know, started in Manhattan in the mid-60s and, and you, you know, you're a pipsqueak little eight sports bars. <laughs> and the more I learned about Fridays, actually, the, the more endearing it became. And as I said, it was pretty cool um, to learn the history and, and the pride that the team had in the culture of Fridays over many years. It started in 65 by this guy, Alan Stillman, mm. and he was a perfume salesman. And I think he had a bit of a what women want moment. And you gotta remember, this is mid-sixties New York. Yeah. It was mad men, very chauvinistic culture. Yep. Um, and and typically if, if a female wanted to go to a bar, you were taken by a gentleman. Um, you didn't just the girls didn't just go to the bar and have cocktails together and and Alan basically said, This is bullshit. Mm. Um, I'm starting a bar for women. And that was TGI Fridays. It was a cocktail bar. He positioned it opposite the Pan Am building Mm
0: -hmm. where
1: all the hosties, flight attendants were staying. Um, He invented, he he put on the first happy hour in Manhattan um, and he invented the Long Island iced tea um, and made, you know, sweet flavoured cocktails because typically back then they would, the drinks were pretty strong too. It was old fashioned sort of stuff Mm. that weren't particularly female friendly. Um, He put greenery through the bar. It was actually created a a trend in hospitality through that era called fern bars, um, which we see in pubs all the time now um, with greenery inside the restaurants. Um, But that was the first Fridays. And there's a really famous story too about um, them being packed one night in Fridays in New York and and somebody coming to the front door and and the person at the door saying, I'm sorry, we're full. And they said, "Well, well, can we wait? And they said, what? What do you mean? Can we wait outside? And um, and the dorm went and saw Alan and said, there's people outside that we're full and they want to wait. Um, and I guess the story is, of course, that became the first line-up in York. Nobody lined up to get into bars or clubs. or There was none of that. Mm. Uh, and, and I think it was written up at the time that um, there's a bar now that people line up to get into, TGI Fridays, 1965, New York.
0: So is that the reason, James, that you decided to you know keep the brand is the fact that the history was there because it would have like it would have been so much easier I think for you to just change all those 10 sites into into sporting globes and, and move forward right so was it it was just the romance of what the history was of TGI's and then and then you know what it could actually be in Australia if it was done you know to an extra level.
1: Now, well, I think, um, as I said, when I looked at the business more broadly, there was actually some really good differentiation in guest base. When I was looking at the business, what I found was actually, obviously, it had great family appeal and probably better family appeal than a traditional sports bar in the Sporting Globe model. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a broader customer base that that we could appeal to by having a, a second brand there. Um and when I, again, when I looked at it, also Sporting Globe it does have a slight male skew um, in its customer base. Fridays is actually a female skew. Um, so it's and again the, the the our mix there we sell predominantly more cocktails. Um, Whereas Sporting Globe's a lot heavier in beer. So um, the we was there was a differentiation in customer base. There was certainly a differentiation in um, in the end product that was being consumed but then incredible synergies um, across the supply chain um, and and across um, the back-end systems and procedures and and um, support services required to make those businesses successful. So, again, we, we really viewed it and thought, well, th- this can work as sort of a brother-sister brand together um, and together um, with those synergies, um, what we think will be stronger as, as one.
0: And I can imagine that sort of allows you to have both brands as being – quite flexible as you grow right like even in for your franchise partners to maybe potentially have you know one of each or you know um, those two brands as they grow their own portfolio of signature hospitality group brands is the fact that you do have high street locations and you do have shopping center locations uh, and I've seen both live and they're both really successful models so I imagine it just gives you a lot more flexibility as you grow the brand.
1: Great, great flexibility to, to tailor to a market. Um, we haven't... So TGI Fridays, they're all corporate-owned at this stage. Oh, right. Okay. Um, we haven't embarked upon franchising there yet, but um, never say never. And the, But in terms of flexibility, um, the Friday's footprint... Um, is a lot smaller too. So that, that enables and opens up a lot of doors um, for these and locations. Um, so, again, that was a real benefit. Fridays is definitely more of a restaurant, hotel licence. Right. Um, it's a restaurant licence, whereas sporting globes are all, you know, hotel tavern licences. Mm-hmm. So there are some um, some differences there, and, and as you say, that does provide great flexibility when you are growing and rolling out to um, to meet the market.
0: Yeah. So what are some of the challenges in running, you know, venues like yours? Especially, you know, I want to touch on during the last, you know, the last 18 months, you've got locations in five different cities around Australia, states around Australia at the moment. Uh, so COVID has, you know, touched a brand. You've got big venues. I'm sure they're challenging to run at the best of times but trying to make them run, um, you know, coming in and out of lockdowns in, especially in Sydney and Melbourne must have just been uh, a very challenging time for for Sydney for the last 18 months. So can you talk through how you guys have, have managed to cope with that.
1: Sure, I think um, you know the once everyone got over the shell shock. I remember that that first night where Scott Morrison came out and said the pubs are going to close. Um, you know that was a, a huge uh, moment for everybody in our industry, uh, and you know one of the things I'm really proud of we got we got cracking as as many did, and we we created a a, a really clear plan of well what can we control, what can we do. Um, and, of course, everybody shifted to, to go and, and, and take away um, as best they could. We were in a pretty strong position because we'd already be, been piloting um, uh, through our own app um, online ordering um, mm-hmm. or, or, or ordering through, through application in venue. So we were able to, and we owned our own tech. We've always had our own membership program and it's it's very strong. Um, we've got over half a million members. So yeah. um, we were able to pivot really quickly and build that out to be able to do, um, to go both pickup and delivery. And we utilised our own team to do some of that while we then continued to build out, well, what is the right party platforms to really grow this? Takeaway was less than 1% of our business um, going into the pandemic. And we were able to grow that um, pretty quickly um, to not not replace ever, of course, what we are doing on-prem, but get up to a fairly reasonable revenue run rate. Um, And always with the purpose in mind of engaging team and keeping our staff and team together and keeping engaged with the community um, and our our customer base because we knew Um, and we had really high conviction that if we can keep the lights on we're going to be able to reboot relaunch quicker Um, our communities will hopefully remember and be grateful for the fact that you know when they were at home going through a rough time like we all were they could still get their buffalo wings um, and a and a um, and a cheeseburger and so forth delivered to them so you know we took we took some some real pride in being able to do that. the The JobKeeper program was obviously enormous for all of all of the businesses around the country. I was fairly vocal at the time, and uh, that I was extremely disappointed and, to some extent, embarrassed that the government failed to include um, the skilled visa holders in that. First iteration of JobKeeper, yep. and of course they, they backflipped. And when we had the disaster payments that came um, the, the second time around, they finally included them, which was the right thing to do. But um, you know, we we um, we had 400 visa holders um, going into the pandemic. Uh, many of them student visa holders or, or working holidays, and I think we all recognise and acknowledge, particularly for working holiday makers, in a pandemic. Okay, probably a lot of them are going to return home. But to tell um, you know skilled uh, migrants that have moved to Australia on the promise and and with a plan to become permanent residents that hey you need to go home that that just wasn't going to fly and um, some of many of them had bought houses a lot of them had kids that are you know, entwined in our community and they're part of a local sports team, they're in schools. So we're never going home. So we we made a commitment to make sure that we were going to um, continue to employ and, and pay 63 full-time um, skilled visa holders through that and, and try and work, work through that. And I think that put us in a really good position for reopening because we knew mm-hmm. we needed these people on the way through. And, you know, it's a travesty that I think the government didn't support it further then because, we know what we're facing right now a massive skills shortage across our industry a, a student population base that was one of australia's biggest industries mm-hmm. um with international students that was about 700,000 000 people spending you know combined in our economy about 40 billion dollars that is now halved mm-hmm. um and you've got other countries like canada that are capitalized on it and um have have remained open for business and invited those students to come and study in Canada and and build lives and and get degrees and then hopefully continue to work as as um, you know skilled educated people in their economies. So we've got a body of work to do as a country now. I think to get those um, student visas back um, and give them a pathway to permanent residency to help grow our economy and of course fast track um, and hopefully get to the world now to skilled visa holders now. To, to tell them to come back with confidence to Australia um, so we hope we hope that will happen um, sooner than later
0: yeah let's touch on that first of all I want to say well done for what you did for those 63 staff over the last especially last 12 uh, months James the the brands that I've talked to who have done that are excelling right now and they and they're and they're really doing well and it's it's Really good to hear that you guys have done that as well, even though that would have been, you know, it's a tough financial choice. It's obviously not a t- tough moral choice, but it is It is still tough. You're running a business at the end of the day. And to make that decision, I think well done to Signature for doing that. I think it proves that you guys are doing an amazing job for the industry as a whole. Let, let's talk about the skill shortage because we're dealing in a situation as we record this, you know, at the start of November that... We're starting to let you know people back into the country um, after 18 months, but it's going to be months, I think, before we see you know skilled migrants come back, um, students come back, um, those kind of things into the country, which is obviously going to help the hospitality industry. But we're but this summer, like it's going to be it's going to be a massive challenge. So how are you guys handling that at the moment with a mm-hmm. skill shortage across the industry?
1: Well, you, you, you can only do your best right now. As you say, there's no, there's no magic silver bullet um, to get those skilled workers back into the country everywhere. Um, as I said, we were pretty lucky because of the programs we had and because we foresaw this issue long ago. Um, we worked really hard on staff retention um, across our teams. And then we were out advocating um, pretty early um, that we need to be recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. Um, so that we could bring people up and try and um, have have requisite skill team ready to go when we did reopen. So I think the reopening, the pace of it too, given um, you know the, how, how slow historically um, we were and cautious in reopening, the pace of it in Victoria particularly this time, caught out some operators thinking, God, I didn't. I honestly didn't think we'd be open to this sort of capacity this quickly. So, look, we've certainly done that. We've, we've had to, you know, you train younger staff and onboard younger staff and put them in those positions. Um, and there's been a huge focus and emphasis around um, upskilling people internally quickly. And I think the use of technology as well is a way to hopefully um, take a little bit of pressure off and as mentioned, we're doing digital ordering through our app. We were piloting that pre-pandemic mm-hmm. and now post-pandemic or, or still coming out of hopefully uh, living with, with COVID. All of our tables, we've got beacons on and we, we run a, a, um, an omni-channel model. You, you can order uh, through a server as we always have if that's what you choose. Um, but you can also uh, tap the beacon and order through your own applic- own phone and our application, um, and that takes a little bit of pressure um, off the staff and team to be able to do reasonable volume um, w- without quite as as much touch. And it's super convenient for um, our guests. The the ones that you know have used it a bit and and love it, they really embrace it, and that's their preferred method of ordering. Um, and there's Plenty of people that that prefer the um, the full human touch and server. Um, so we're working through that. To your point, I think as people come back in, you know, we'll do that as quick as we possibly can. We're out right now, actively recruiting um, and and working with um, with agency and government to bring visa holders in uh, a, as and where appropriate. How
0: um how have you guys balanced the use of the app for ordering a table and then obviously bringing the table versus you know a bar experience because you're you're dealing in a an amazing environment which is built around excitement built around sport built around great food i imagine most people wouldn't go to either of your venues by themselves like they're going as groups for a, for a really good time and and part of that good time in some places is is going up to the bar and you know standing shoulder to shoulder with someone and having a look at the tv while they're waiting to order a beer and that kind of stuff like how have you managed to make sure there's still an amazing environment while people are generally sitting down and ordering product from their tables.
1: I think um, you know it, it's it's a process, isn't it? Because I think we're really lucky, um, and we feel really grateful. The community and broadly the customer base that come back, they're just over the moon to be back mm. in venue and together um, in and New South Wales. So I think people have been um, understanding that there's been COVID rules. We've had to be seated for periods and it's quite convenient ordering at table. As things have returned, like up in Sydney now where, you know, it's uh, vertical consumptions now, um, you know, available in outdoor area. Things are really um, progressing. So I think people are getting back to it. Um, and again, we're, we're not going to dictate what the how the customer um, uh, chooses to order. We'll facilitate that as they come. But we believe if we make the product and offering strong enough on the digital front It'll be compelling that some people continue to enjoy the order that way. Um, and again, just uh, help spread the load of, of order flow, staff demand over this next little period. Um, so definitely, I don't think, you know, it's it's not a finished job or product by any means. It's something that will continue to evolve. And I think the tech will get better and better. Um, the personalization that is continuing to happen as is, is, uh, in, in the digital space. Um, through our own application and through ordering is pretty cool. And again, that'll make make it more compelling for customers if we know, um, hey, Sean's in, we know what he likes and um, we can suggestive order to you, um, things that are relevant to you and feed up content to you um, that's you're going to be interested in um, and it's going to make your experience better and, and enhanced overall. Uh, well, that's that's a real opportunity for us and and i think something we're definitely not
0: shying away yeah i think personalization yeah is going to be is going to be the key to make brands much more sticky and memorable you know so i think that's um that's a really important insight i'm curious you know you said it um that takeaway was like 1% of of the brand before the pandemic and obviously you built in delivery into that are you seeing maybe a new innovation of people that maybe you know as we reopen to normality especially with sporting globe maybe being too busy to, <laughs> to to take on you know more people inside a venue that there is a possibility that sporting globe especially could have a delivery model in which people get together at their house and and get you know the cheeseburgers and they get the buffalo wings and and beers and all that kind of stuff are you seeing that as being a new revenue stream for the business
1: yeah i think for sure um you bang on that that we've all had a taste of of that convenience at home and it's broadened our perspective that um, it doesn't just have to be fast food or qsr that that service those particular uh, occasions Mm. so um, to have the pub be able to do that is fantastic and i think as mentioned with, with my experience in the US, I've taken a lot of inspiration from that. And if you look to the US, Takeaway is a much bigger part of the um, industry there. Probably pre-pandemic, going to the pandemic, depending on the location, TGI Fridays have about 500 locations across the US. Wow. And Takeaway could have been 10 to 20%. Well, during the pandemic, that obviously went through the roof. But now once they're fully reopened again, it's holding at about 30%. So it's it's just about doubled um, and in some locations tripled on, on pre-pandemic in the US. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the, the studies and statistics coming out of the US are showing that compound annual growth in restaurants um, is likely to come from to-go, a big chunk of it, um, in the US over the next five to 10 years. And I think Australia will follow suit. Again, the convenience piece. Um, the experience and appetite we've just developed for it, the capabilities that businesses have now um, learned and built in through the pandemic to continue with that. Is it going to be 20% in Australia? I don't think so in our type of business model, um, but I think it's pretty foreseeable that it could be 10 And as long as that can be done profitably, um, obviously in Australia we've got a challenge. There's a higher labour cost than most places around the world, the vast, vast majority of the world. So, you know, our third party delivery platforms like Uber, of course, have, you know, one of the highest rates in the world or probably the highest. So we've got that challenge um, and it'll be interesting to see um, as technology evolves, create a sustainable and and profitable model for both the restaurants, businesses and the third parties um, and importantly, the drivers. Mm. um, So that that whole system and economy there works for everyone.
0: I think the drivers is definitely the missing part in Australia, and what makes us very different to what, especially what's happening in the US, which it's, a, it's obviously a cheaper rate to do that. Do you do you think in the in the delivery part now you've you know seen some potential volume that you can get coming off a coming off a lower base? Is it is it something that you think you might want to own the actual delivery, the delivery driver as well, and hire the delivery driver because obviously you've owned your own tech with regards with having app and order at table, which which is. Um, somewhat unique in the marketplace. Is that, is that something you guys want to play with or you think you would just use third-party delivery?
1: I think right now um, third-party delivery is somebody that can um, aggregate other orders makes makes a lot of sense mm. because you do need um, a high enough ticket and, and ideally high enough number of orders on that drive to make, make the whole trip economical. Again, we talk about how important it is that the driver wins and, and is paid the right amount for that trip. Um, The way to achieve that is a higher average value and a higher number of orders done efficiently together. Um, And again, that might come from um, a number of venues, hopefully close close together, then makes that whole model work. Um, So again, at 10% delivery volume in our businesses, I'm not necessarily seeing that as something we would um, go heavily down the own driver view. Uh, White label, though, is definitely something, I mean, if we can originate the orders through our own technology, um, reduce the commission by being able to do that ourselves, and then just pay for the actual um, delivery service, rather than paying for the for the uh, marketing and order origination through uh, another platform, that starts to make the model a lot more attractive too. And and that could be a good way forward and something that some of the um, bigger brands are already um, finding some success with.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to see that sort of start to come through and you know, you sort of own that driver in a white kind of in a in a white label kind of way, which is really cool. James, my last question too is like, you know, as we record this, we're putting this out, you know, before the end of twenty twenty one. It's been a challenging year, but now you've got, you know, all your venues open across across Australia and like what are you looking forward to for the next 12 months for yourself and also for the brand?
1: Well, I'm looking forward to getting on a plane next week, actually. It's my first um, trip where I'm going to go see some venues um, in the state, which I'm super pumped for. Um, uh, The Zoom's been functional, but um, I'm definitely ready to get face-to-face with some of our team and venues, which would be great. So getting back to that, but, yeah, we're growing in the state. Um, Again, we started in Victoria and uh, our concentration has still been heavier here. Um, we we're very fortunate that, you know, we did have quite a big network interstate through this because obviously Victoria has been the hardest hit, but really want to continue um, that interstate growth. New South Wales is a big opportunity for us. Queensland's a big opportunity for us. Really, it's been hard to assess sites remotely um, over Zoom. Um, so I want to go and, and beat the pavement and do that, and grow our business up there. I th- I'm thinking that next year will be a really positive year. Um, I've been pretty pro, um, you know, the the vaccinated economy and getting back in that manner um, purely because we've seen it work. Um, in the US, for example, in the Northeast, where vaccination rates have been higher, hospitalizations been significantly lower, and business has been able to get back onto it and 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 trade with some certainty. In the south in the US, it's been a disaster, mate. They, yep. Where they don't, where they haven't got high enough vaccination rates. Hospitalisation rates just keep jumping. You get a bit of cold weather and whatnot, um, some events. That's hugely disruptive um, for the business. Not to mention, obviously, it's a disastrous health health outcome. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really, you know, buoyed by the strategy that or, or the uptake of vaccination in Australia. Um, it just shows, you know, we're pretty sensible people generally and we, we get on with it. And to have one of the highest vaccination rates in the world, I think will see us so well placed in 2022. We've got the boosters coming. Um, we, I think we can really be the envy of the world if we manage this thing well from here and take on the lessons that we've had. We've got huge pent-up savings, a huge, a huge amount of demand for um, socialising together. So, again, I think we'll continue to grow in a state. Hospitality will have a very good 2022.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I had a conversation with a mate in Europe yesterday and he said, Sean, I don't care how many more boosters they want to give me as long as I can keep going and getting a beer. So I think <laughs> um, I think that's definitely, definitely the feeling here in Australia as well. Um, James, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. What's um what's the best way that people can find out about Signature Group? Yeah,
1: well, um, you can head head to sportingglobe.com.au um, or tgifridays.com.au. Um We'd love for people to come and um and check out uh, any of our venues um, and enjoy a beer uh, and a meal with some friends to celebrate being back out together.
0: Happy days, as always. Linked up in the show notes of this podcast, James Seclaire. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Thanks, John. Good on you, mate
0: thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of principle of hospitality i hope you really enjoyed that one i know i learned a lot today so i hope you liked it as always please comment like and share this podcast with your friends in the industry we're making this content with the industry in mind so we'd really appreciate you sharing it along thanks as well to our supporter, of the largest family owned and operated hospitality supply in australia chef's hat where the industry shops and if you don't know us at Post, Sash, my co-founder from Principal Design, has one of the best desired agencies in Australia. So if you're looking for anything in strategy, branding, digital design, wayfinding, and graphic design, you can find them at principaldesign.com.au, and myself at Ope Patrick Consulting for anything to do with systems and processes to make your business run even more smoothly. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for Chef's Hat for supporting us. And until next time, stay safe, everyone.